Last week, I talked about the Four Noble Truths. And this week, I'm going to be talking about the Eightfold Noble Path. Just to review briefly, the First Noble Truth says that life is dukkha. Dukkha is the dis-ease or the discomfort that pleasure and pain are intertwined. The Second Noble Truth says that the cause of dukkha is craving or clinging, attachment. The Third Noble Truth says that it is possible to escape dukkha and attain nirvana. And the fourth noble truth is that we attain nirvana by following the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Noble Eightfold Path is a set of concrete recommendations for how we can move our life, in the Buddhist understanding, more toward enlightenment, more toward nirvana. You know, and even if we were not so so attached to those Buddhist metaphors, the Eightfold Noble Path is about... concrete steps that we can follow to unfold our deeper nature, to, to bring forth our deeper possibilities. So one thing I want to say before I begin going through the, the Eightfold Path is to, to make very clear, it's not a sequence. It's not, it's not eight steps and you have to do the first step and then do the second step. Um, they're, they're laid out in a particular order, but really they're, they're all interconnected. And, and a breakthrough with any one of them would support the other seven. So there's, there's this dynamic synergy between all eight of them. So the first, the first stage or the first part of the Eightfold Path is right understanding. And right understanding is roughly having a Buddhist view on the way the world works. Um, But it's not not so much the the philosophical. It's not right understanding is very practical, very concrete. It's about, you know, it's the understanding that I'm not going to get something out of meditating if I only do it once in a while. I'm going to get I'm going to get the most out of meditating if I do it every day. Or, you know, if someone triggers me, you know, there, there's not going to be any growth in blame or victim status that what I need to do is look at, look at that trigger within me, look at my own attachment and process that as my own stuff. You know, the, these very practical recommendations. Um, and of course, as we move on the path, we have deeper and deeper understandings, deeper and deeper um, levels of understanding. Certainly over the years, I've had experience where, you know, I had head-level understandings of Buddhist teachings in my early 20s, and and much later in life, it's like, oh, okay, that's what that really means to live that out, you know. So right understanding ripens slowly over time. The second step, or the second stage, sometimes it's called Uh, right intention or right resolve. And the way I'd frame this is, what are you committed to? What are you committed to in life? You know, and how deep is your commitment? Um, What would it mean to really, really commit to your, to unfolding your deeper possibilities? You know, And I think all of us have those things that we know, like if I were living the life I should be living, there's, 
I should be doing X more often, you know, whatever that X is. And that X is different for different ones of us. It might be meditating, might be journaling, it might, you know, a bunch of different things. But we have these intuitions of the things I ought to be doing if I were really serious about getting my life together, you know. Right resolve is really committing, really making a firm commitment to those things we know we ought to be doing. Um, and commitment is hard. Commitment is challenging, you know. Because commitment means every day. Commitment doesn't mean just when I feel like it or just when, I'm, when it's convenient for me, you know. Commitment means commitment, you know. And that's a hard thing. But it, it's certainly a good question for us to, to look at and to be honest with ourselves about what are we really committed to, you know. The third step is right speech. And there are many ways to talk about right speech. I'll, I'll frame this. I think there's one spiritual writer who talked about the metaphor of the three gates, anything that I say should pass through the three gates. Is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? You know? And true, of course, you know, it, it's less about is it factually true? I mean, that, that's kind of kid stuff. Is it is what we're saying, you know, factually verifiable? I mean, you know, that's important. But really, the, the deeper truth is Am I speaking something that resonates with the truth of who I am? Am I really speaking my truth? Am I speaking something that resonates in my own body? You know? Um, So in that sense, is it true? And also, is it kind? You know? Because it's possible to speak the truth in a not very generous way. It's, It's possible to actually wield the truth as a weapon. You know, and so am I speaking it in a way certainly that is kind, but I think this also takes into account what Buddhist calls skillful means. You know, am I speaking the truth in a way that the other person really can hear it, really can access it? You know, am I am I speaking at a at a pace or at a at a tempo that they're going to be able to absorb what it is that I'm saying? You know, so all of that is is part of the kindness, part of, you know, how connected in what I'm is what I'm saying to others. And necessary, is it necessary? That's just that's such a wonderful question. You know, how often when we're talking. Is it resonant truth coming from the core of our body? And how often when we're talking, is it just blather coming out of our mouth? You know, how much of what we say is necessary to be said? And I think of this, um, they give this guide to, to little kids, but it's really a good one for all of us to, to think about. What they tell little kids is step up, step back. You know, and the idea that, that the person who is really shy, who often walks away from a conversation wishing that they had said more, that person needs, part of right speech for that person is learning to speak up, learning to share themselves, learn, learning to contribute their own view, you know? Whereas so the person who has no trouble sharing their opinions, 
I'm more like that, you know. For people like us, right speech is stepping back. You know, saying what I'm going to say, but then making room for others to speak. Inviting others into the conversation. You know, all of that is part of right speech. The next stage is right action. And I'd say at a superficial level, right action is about following, you know, living according to Buddhist morality, you know. Um, and certainly we could do worse than live, of course, live according to Buddhist morality. Um, but really, there's no formula for right action. Um, I think three touchstones I would give for right action. Am I calm? Am I in touch with my heart? And I'm, am I in touch with my vulnerability? You know, and first of all, am I calm? You know, it, it's, it's simply true. We're not at our best when we're stressed. We know this. We absolutely know this about ourselves. We're not at our best when we're stressed, when we're uptight, when we're filled with fear, filled with anxiety. We're at our best when we're relaxed, when we can be joyful and playful. That's when we're at our best, you know. And so can we really be calm? Um, heart connecting, you know, can I, can I see the world through the eyes of my heart? Can I be acting in a way that I'm feeling with my heart the presence of everyone around me, you know? And I mean, am I in touch with my vulnerability so that I'm able to attune to myself, attune to others? Um, of course, none of these are guarantees that everything I'm going to do is magically correct, but it's, uh, how can I say, if I'm in touch with my, if I'm calm, in touch with my heart, in touch with my vulnerability, I'm probably going to be more often correct than not. And, and probably when I make mistakes, it's going to be easier for me to, to, to course correct, you know. I'll also say, I think each one of us has within us, deep in our core, this deep, quiet place of knowing. And when we can access that, we, of course, we need to be calm and in touch with our heart and vulnerable to access that. Um, when we can access that, um, there's something very powerful, you know, often when I'm thinking of how am I going to respond to a situation, you know, my head might be running through a few possibilities. Well, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. But then when I, I, my head goes to one, it's like bing, 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 bing. Like suddenly it resonates up and down my body, you know, and it's like, okay, that, that's what feels aligned with the deeper parts of me, you know? And I'd say even even that's no guarantee of being in right action, but um, you know, it's uh, how could I say? We're even if a mistake from that is our own authentic mistake, and we should own it. You know, that sort of thing. Part of right action has to be owning our own authentic mistakes. <laughs> The next step is right livelihood. And right livelihood traditionally is defined as livelihood, having a profession, a job, a livelihood that doesn't cause harm. You know, and so part of it is what 
you know, what is what I'm doing, you know, say I'm working for a company is what the company is doing. Is that causing more good in the world than harm? You know, so part is that. But part is also, is it harming me? Because in, in Buddhism, whether I'm harming somewhere else or harming myself, that's all harm as far as Buddhism is concerned. There's no asymmetry between self and other, you know, the way that we have such a, a vast asymmetry in the in some forms of the Western systems, you know. You know, I could be working for, you know, the, the most idealistic nonprofit, but if it's soul sucking and driving me into the ground, it's not right action for me. It might be right action for somebody else, but not for me, you know. You know, so part of right action is what impact does my work have on me? What is what does it bring out of me, you know? And part of that might be the work itself, if I'm feeling challenged and fulfilled by the work. Part is also how we re- connect with our colleagues, you know? And it, it's funny because, how how can I say this? The dimensions of right livelihood are not defined by capitalism, you know? And... And at our job, there's the thing that the company is doing, all right, and that might be beneficial or not beneficial. Hopefully, if it's right action, it's more beneficial. But also part of our work is how we are with our coworkers and the kinds of connections. You know, that's not that's not part of work in the sense of, uh, you know, um, you know, what necessary the, the corporate expectations are. But spiritually, that's part of the work, you know. And that's part of light, right livelihood. What kind of connection do I have with my coworkers? So all of this is part of right livelihood. I'll also say, you know, sometimes we may be in a situation where we're in some job and it's okay, you know, it's pretty good. And we get along with our coworkers, but it's not super inspiring. And sometimes we don't know what else we do, but sometimes we have this intuition, boy, my, it would be really wonderful if I could do X. You know, I have a dream of doing this X. And when we have that dream and when we're aware of that dream, following that dream is right livelihood, you know. Which is not always easy, which is often involves risk. Um, and, and again, not everyone has that. Not everyone has that, you know, star that they need to follow. But if you have that star you need to follow, you need to follow it. The next stage is right effort. And the way I would frame this is, how hungry are you to do spiritual work? You know, because spiritual work is hard. You know, there's, you know, parts of it are about facing our deepest fears or our deepest places of pain or shame or grief or whatever, you know. Um, the head will make a thousand excuses about why I shouldn't do it, why it's not a good idea, why I don't need to do it. I don't need to be bothered with that, you know, this kind of thing. Um, it's natural when we're starting out in the spiritual process. Maybe we we come to Buddhism not having done much work at all. You know, some lovely ideas in Buddhism, you know, but I don't know, will, are these really going to work for me? You know, and it's hard to have a lot of hunger for the process at that point. At a certain point, and I'm sure we've all had these over the course of our life, we have these experiences of, 
I see through an illusion and then suddenly I see, oh my God, I've been causing myself all that pain. I don't need to do that anymore. You know, and, you know, it's, it's experiences like that that fuel our hunger to do more work. The more we have those experiences of, wow, I feel clear now. What, you know, wow, I now have a kind of vitality I didn't have before, like all those sorts of things. Those fuel our hunger for spiritual work. So right effort is really something that we almost build from the ground up as we're going through our spiritual process. The last two are right mindfulness and right concentration. And the way I would distinguish these, right mindfulness is about where is our attention? Right concentration is about what is the quality of our attention? So mindfulness, first of all, where is our attention? Is our attention in the present moment? Or is our attention on the past and on the future, you know? And it's this funny thing, when, when, when we're sending emotional energy to the past or the future, we're sending emotional energy away from our vital center, away from our body, because our body is in the present moment, you know? And so there's something actually exhausting about that. Um, there's something very grounding and in fact, even very healing about mindfulness practice, about being very intentional about, I'm going to notice what is physically present in my physical environment. You know, often there's something incredibly grounding and calming about that. Um, and having any kind of mindfulness practice is just, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds of studies about how it improves health, it improves happiness, you know. Mindfulness is a tremendous gift. And then right concentration. I think the way I would say it is I regard it as one of the most fundamental insights of the Buddha that, that our overall life happiness is so intimately linked with the quality of our attention. You know, and, and I've talked about this before, this whole phrase, this idea of quality of attention, it's an odd one. And it, it's one that's kind of foreign to this culture. And the metaphor I often use is with food. In, a fa- in famine conditions, the only thing that matters in famine conditions is, is there food or not, you know? And it's only when we have conditions of relative abundance that we can start to say, you know, I like this food more than that food. And then someone could become a connoisseur of food. There has to be tremendous abundance in that. We live in a world where there is a famine of attention. There are multi-billion dollar Industries competing for our attention, you know, people have, feel like they have very little attention. You know, one of the symptoms of having very little attention is what people say all the time. I feel that like time goes so fast. I feel like the last 10 years flew by, this kind of thing. If you're not paying attention, time goes fast, you know. Having high quality attention means... First of all, my mind is clear, my mind is calm. High quality attention is about being 
being not only present in my mind, but throughout my body, sort of listening to the world with with all my senses open. You could say listening, you know, feeling the world with all my chakras open, if you want to say it that way. Um, being deeply present in the vitality of the present moment. And I'm certainly aware at this point in my life that, you know, there, there are days that, of course, I'm more wrapped up in my own, you know, ego trip or self-pity or whatever. And if I'm wrapped up in my own little story, I walk around in a world that's relatively colorless, that's relatively gray and unexciting. And then other days, if I'm more centered and more calm and more present, then the world is more, it's, it, I think it's actually more colorful. It's, it's more alive, you know? And everything and everyone is just more inherently interesting and more engaging, you know? Um, Walt Whitman has these passages where he talks about the world is just bursting forth with miracles, you know? Like, that's a very high quality of attention. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. That's the quote cheat in the chat. At the top, I just list the Eightfold Noble Path. And then I have a couple quotes from the Zen master Kota Sawaki, um, who lived in Japan earlier in this century. Four quotes from him. You suffer because you don't want to accept what has been, what has to be accepted, very simply. The second one, you don't seek the way, the way seeks you. That one I love. That it, it, it ultimately the Eightfold Noble Path is not about what I'm doing, but what I'm aligning myself with, what I'm, what I'm surrendering to. Relatedly, he says, in the end, there will be nothing left for you to do besides let go. And this final one caught me. Why is it that human beings are so wiped out? It is the constant effort to gain a little advantage that wipes us out. Can you just feel that in your body, the constant effort to gain a little advantage? You know, all that effort for nothing. A quote from the Buddha about, about um, right speech. Monks, a statement doubt, endowed with the five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. So five factors for right speech there. This wonderful quote from Confucius. The master said, if you look at their intentions, examine their motions, and scrutinize what brings them contentment, how can people hide who they are? How can they hide who they really are? There's something very deep there. From Alexander Graham Bell, concentrate all your thoughts upon the work at hand. The sun's rays do not burn until brought to a focus. Will Rogers says, things will get better despite our efforts to improve them. (laughs) Sri Nisgardata said, a quiet mind is all you need. 
All else will happen rightly once your mind is quiet. As the sun on rising makes the world act, is so self-awareness, self-awareness affect changes in the affect changes in the mind. In the light of calm and steady self-awareness, inner energies wake up and work miracles with that effort on your part. Simone Weil says, even if our efforts of attention seem for years to be producing no results, one day a light that is in exact proportion to them will flood the soul. Ajahn Chah says, Buddhism teaches us to make the earnest effort in the things that we do, but our actions should not be mixed with desire. They should be performed with the aim of letting go and realizing non-attachment. We do what we need to do, but with letting go. We do our work according to our responsibilities rather than a wish to get something. If we act like this, we can be at ease. It's a matter of making causes. If the causes are good, the result is bound to be good. If we think like this, there will be lightness of mind. This is called right livelihood. Thich Nhat Hanh, in a, a wonderful quote about mindfulness, says, Wash every bowl, every dish, as if you are bathing the baby Buddha, breathing in, feeling joy, breathing out, smiling. Every minute can be hol- a holy, sacred minute. Where do you seek the spiritual? You seek the spiritual in every ordinary thing that you do every day. Sweeping the floor, watering the vegetables, and washing the dishes become holy and sacred if mindfulness is there. With mindfulness and concentration, everything becomes spiritual. He also said, true love is possible only with understanding. When there's understanding, compassion is born. Robert Persick has this wonderful metaphor. Mountains should be climbed with as little effort as possible and without desire. The reality of your own nature should determine the speed. If you become restless, speed up. If you become winded, slow down. You climb the mountain in an equilibrium between restlessness and exhaustion. Then when you're no longer thinking ahead, each footstep isn't just a means to an end, but a unique event in itself. To live only for our future goal is shallow. It's the sides of the mountains which sustain life, not the top. Tremendous wisdom there. The poet Maya Angelou says, You may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. Try to be a rainbow in someone's cloud. Do not complain. Make every effort to change the things you do not like. If you cannot make a change, change the way you've been thinking you might find a new solution. Rachel Naomi Remen says, the most basic and powerful way to connect to another person is just is to listen, just listen. Perhaps the most important thing we ever give each other is our attention. A loving silence often has far more power to heal and to connect than the most well-intentioned words. Hugh Prather says, It's not that we fear the place of darkness, but we don't think we are worth the effort to find the place of light. Choying Trumpa said, when performing meditation practice, one should just think of it as a natural function of everyday life, like eating or breathing, not as a special or formal event to be undertaken with great seriousness or solemnity. One must realize that to meditate is 
to pass beyond effort, beyond practice, beyond aims and goals. Meditation is always perfect, so there is no need to correct anything. That's great. John Kabat-Zinn says, Concentration is a cornerstone of mindfulness practice. Your mindfulness will, will only be as robust as your capacity of your mind to remain calm and stable. Without calmness, the mirror of mindfulness will have an agitated and choppy surface and will not be able to reflect things with any accuracy. Norman Fisher says, No one can avoid suffering. Given that this is so, how can we take our lives in hand and make a serious effort to develop wisdom, compassion, and resilience? How can we not prepare our minds and hearts for the inevitable suffering that we're going to be facing someday? We have insurance for our homes and our, for our car and our home because we know we need to protect ourselves from the possibility of accident and loss. We go to the doctor because we know our health requires protection. Why then would we not think to guard and strengthen our mind and heart to cope with the suffering that certainly will be coming in some measure at some time? George Firestein says, We must be willing to commit an entire lifetime of yogic practice. There must be a basic impulse to grow, regardless of whether we will achieve liberation in this lifetime. It's one of yoga's fundamental tenets that no effort is wasted. Even the slightest attempt at transforming ourselves makes a difference. It is our patient cumulative effort that flowers into enlightenment sooner or later. Paul Coelho says, Elegance is achieved when all that is superfluous has been discarded and the human being discovers simplicity and concentration. The simpler and more sober the posture, the more beautiful it will be. And relatedly, David Nickturn says, for most of us, cultivating simplicity and contentment might take some real effort. Sharon Salzberg says, by prizing heartfulness above fault faultlessness, we may reap more from our efforts because we're more likely to be changed by it. Jaggi Vasudev says, The whole effort of spiritual process is to break the boundaries you have drawn for yourself and experience the immensity of who you are. Maya Dura says, Think of it as Right Livelihood 2.0. In addition to not causing harm to yourself or another, this is this is livelihood that is an expression of your core intention, work that you can fall in love with and that no longer feels like work, work that matters. Sarah Powers says, the Buddha was less concerned with a person's station in life or what they did for a living and cared more about how each one of us is relating to our moment-to-moment -moment experience, whatever we're doing. If we're interested in aligning our workday with our spiritual aspirations for insight, peace, and well-being, we will, be, we will need to be willing to make changes that may not be easy. Jack O'Keefe says, At the outset of self-inquiry, it is necessary to make an effort to abide in the self. This results in natural abiding over time. The unnatural state of an outward-focused mind must be brought around to being inward-focused, and this alone is where the effort lies. Mind thinks it has something to do in order to realize its true nature. It only has to be quiet, not to engage with thought, and then it must be bypassed. And finally, this amazing quote, How you do anything is how you do everything. 
And really, no no one knows the the origin of that quote. There's there's multiple attributions on the web, but no one knows the origin of that. 